morning, everyone, or good afternoon or evening, depending on when you happen to be watching us. We're honored that you would join us today as we begin a new series entitled Good Rain. Perhaps in my own uh, time here at Bethany, never a more important series for us to consider together as the people of God. So let's take a moment. We'll pray together before we look at our text this morning. Father, we want to thank you for the privilege of gathering in living rooms and uh, in family units and in little pods in different places to listen for your voice, and we're mindful of the moment in which we find ourselves. We pray, Father, for those who are reeling this week over issues of systemic racism. We pray for those who are suffering from fires. We pray for our president. We pray for his, his healing and uh, his family and wisdom for those caring for him. We pray for our nation. We pray for our world as it faces the ongoing effects of a pandemic, and we pray that you would shape us even in these moments today to be people of hope in the midst of all that we face. And we'll thank you for that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It is a very difficult time. We've had COVID and economic messes and race messes and psych messes that come from the isolation ensuing as a result of COVID and messes related to online schooling and parents trying to work in one room while students are online in another room. And it feels like we're getting hit again and again and again, and every week feels like it's three months long. And for some of us, this is having effects. Uh, after I watched the debate on Tuesday night, I couldn't even finish the debate. It was so uh, disgusting to me, if I can use that word. So I turned it off and I couldn't sleep. Then there was an article in the Atlantic Monthly saying that uh, civil war is at the door. And I couldn't even finish reading the article. And again, I couldn't sleep. And there's this mean-spirited response presently uh, to the president's contraction of COVID that is very disturbing to me and again causing me to lose sleep. And the prime response in all these issues that seem to be facing us, often the prime response is fear. I just want to talk about fear for a moment because this is a moment where fear seems understandable, even justified. But hear me today. Fear is not the Christian response ever. The exhortation from the scripture, fear not, has served as the predictable springboard for thousands of sermons over the years. And it's also the gospel. As surely as the first century Jew named Jesus is Lord of the universe, so surely God will have the last word on humankind's affairs. And that's very important for us this morning. Bonhoeffer said it this way, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in 1933, in a sermon, as Hitler was on the rise in power in Germany, this is what he said, fear takes away a person's humanity. This is not what the creator had in mind when he made us, to live as people of fear. The Bible, the gospel, Christ, the church, faith, all of these are one great battle cry against fear in the lives of human beings. And so in today's text, Jesus makes it clear that the only way to rise above fear and live as people of hope in the midst of all that we're facing is to embrace this mystery, mandate, and challenge related to God's good reign. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in our time together, the mystery, mandate, and challenge related to the kingdom of God. So let's begin with this, the mystery. Jesus said it. He's standing before Pilate. He's been uh, betrayed by Judas. He's been arrested. He's been unjustly accused as false witnesses <clears throat> hurling accusations in his direction. He stands before Pilate, the authority of the day, who says to him, I hear you're a king. And Jesus' response, rather than yes or no, so typical of Jesus, he doesn't answer the question. This is what he says, my kingdom is not of this world. 
Now, it's tempting for us to interpret that wrongly. It's tempting to think that when Jesus said this, he meant that his kingdom is placed elsewhere in the cosmos, like not on this earth, but in heaven. Not now, but later. Not physical, but spiritual. And when we think that way, Jesus' reign then is reduced to this kind of private loyalty that essentially doesn't affect anything other than our personal well-being in some small ways. But significantly for us, we then view the kingdom as the place we go after we die, right? And so in that sense, it's like we get to swap out our ticket in the cheap seats called hell for the luxury box called heaven. And as long as we live well here, we get to go to the luxury boxes when we die and that's where the kingdom of heaven is. And I'm here to say to you today, no, that's not at all the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, that's not what he meant. So how we interpret this statement by Jesus regarding the when and where the kingdom actually determines how we live and act in this world. So it's worth spending some time today learning the context in which the people of God received this good news about the kingdom and what the kingdom meant. So the context in which Jesus articulates the the inauguration of his kingdom, very important. And the context was this. Jesus, of course, was a Jew speaking among Jewish people. And the question among Jewish people in his day was this. How do we deal with Rome? In other words, the question of Jewish people was this. How do we, the people of God, relate to the political structure in which we live? That's a pretty relevant question today. And among the Jewish people, there were basically four different subgroups who had different interpretations of how to deal with politics. The Herodians, the Zealots, the Pharisees, the Essenes. And I'm going to go over these briefly because their presence and the way that they think is cogent to our discussion this morning and to our lives right now. These four subgroups among the people of God each had this different view. The zealots advocated, actually, protest marches and violence. They were like this. The only way we fix things is to get rid of Rome. The Herodians, on the other hand, advocated essentially prayer breakfasts and infusing the halls of power with godly people who will make godly policy. The Pharisees are the family values party, basically. They say this, hey, save sex for marriage, and when you're pregnant, keep the baby. And if you do those things, eventually we will enjoy God's favor once again, and God will give us our nation back. The Essenes were like this. It's too late. It's hopeless. Everything's a mess. We're going to move to the mountains and start a commune, right? So you had all four views. The Zealots, protest marchants, uh, the Herodians, infusing the halls of power with godly people, the Pharisees, family values, the Essenes, withdrawal, it sounds very familiar. And what's interesting is all these groups liked Jesus at first, and they all, when Jesus came and said, the kingdom of, of uh, heaven is at hand, they, they heard what he said through kind of the framework and grid of their own understanding of the kingdom of God, and the, uh, the, the zealots were like this, good, Jesus is going to advocate a violent overthrow of Rome. The Essenes were like this, good. Jesus is going to take us out of the desert and we're going to live in a commune. The Pharisees were like this, good. You know, Jesus, he's, he's going to restore moral purity. Everybody loved Jesus at first. But eventually, Jesus angered everybody. Ultimately, the Herodians didn't like Jesus because he showed no interest whatsoever in grabbing power from Rome. 
and being a force behind a campaign to get his disciples to grab power. He wouldn't do that. Instead, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of Rome. My kingdom is of another world. The zealots didn't like Jesus because when he started talking about the ethics of the kingdom, he said, if someone hits you on the left cheek, don't march, don't burn down Starbucks. If someone hits you on the left cheek, turn, let them hit the right cheek as well. You will never overthrow violence with violence. The Pharisees didn't like him because instead of modeling separation from moral purity, Jesus went to parties with women who were working as prostitutes, uh, with Jews who'd sold out to Rome and become tax collectors, with drunks, with quote-unquote sinners, people that the Pharisees declared to be absolutely unacceptable as citizens of the kingdom of God. One of them, a woman, bursts into a party. She begins pouring perfume on Jesus' feet and then weeping over Jesus and drying the tears that are falling on Jesus with her hair. And the Pharisees are like this. Man, if this guy was a prophet, he'd know who she is and she's unclean and he'd kick her out of here. And instead, Jesus says, she's part of my kingdom. Nobody got it. And of course, the Essenes didn't like him because he thought, uh, though they thought that Jesus would ultimately advocate withdrawal into the desert, Jesus kept going back into Jerusalem over and over and over again. He's back in the city. We can't set something up in like Icicle Canyon or the Enchantments or Tianaway. We have to live in the city. And the Essenes were like this, done. So eventually, everyone, Herodian, Zealot, Pharisee, Essene, all rejected Jesus. All of these systems were political views, but it's important to say a couple more things. They were political views, but the adherents, the Herodians, Zealots, Pharisees, and Essenes didn't just call them political views. Hear me, each of the four groups, and they all claimed at least to love God, they each said, this isn't a political view, this is God's political view. In other words, we're right, you're wrong. This created, can you believe it, infighting among God's people and polarization. And let me make a second observation. Though all these systems claim to be God's system, Jesus not only claimed none of them, but Jesus so repudiated each of them that the people of God, with each group attached to their own systems, viewed Jesus as enough of a threat that they united to put him to death. Because to follow Jesus would mean the end of their systems, every one of them. Because Jesus doesn't wholesale confirm the party, the party wholesale rejects Jesus. And I'm, going to tell, I'm just going to tell this to you today. Uh, parties would reject Jesus today too. Republicans would reject Jesus because he'd care not only for life in the womb, but for every black life under the thumb of systemic racism. And for those fleeing persecution and looking for refuge in a different nation. And for forests and oceans dying because we collectively treat the earth not as the garden that it is, but as a warehouse of minerals and chemicals uh, to be gained for short-term profits. The Republicans would reject Jesus and the Democrats would reject Jesus' reign today because he'd care not only for, for black lives, but blue lives and lives in the womb. And he would tell us that our sexual choices aren't just our private affair, 
that God actually has a way for us to treat our bodies that is life-giving to us, and not only us, but to, to those around us in our culture. And the point isn't to say, as you're hearing this, oh, Richard's picking on me because he's picking on my party. Listen, we all fall short. We all have blind spots. We all have things to learn. It's not the point. Here's the point. When Jesus says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying, we need to move away from any wholesale identification with any kingdom of this world and settle ourselves instead in God's kingdom because that's our kingdom. And that means moving away from all these camps as our foundation because they are merely kingdoms of this world with a religious veneer and every kingdom of this world will pass away. That's exactly what Jesus said uh, to Pilate. The apostle Paul said the same thing in Philippians chapter uh, two. He said, uh, our citizenship, or translate it this way, our republic or our civil affairs is in heaven. In other words, is the kingdom of God. And so let me just ask the question this morning because it's very appropriate for all of us to consider this. Where is your primary citizenship? You're like your primary citizenship is where? Kingdom of God? I hope so. Because where, you, where your primary citizenship, your primary allegiance is, that's where your hope is. That's where your real life is for you, your family, your culture, ultimately. And the first step in repentance, according to Jesus, when he showed up on the scene in Matthew 4, the first step is this, turning away from the kingdoms of this world because the kingdoms of this world are all painted over with Christian veneers and tied to a particular party. And Jesus comes on the scene and says to the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Zealots, the Essenes, turn away from your understanding of the kingdom because I have the real kingdom, the eternal kingdom, the heavenly kingdom, and it's not like anything that you're advocating right now. One author says it this way to apply it to our lives together today. Who is in the White House should be as secondary a question to us as the rise of a new Roman Empire was to Jesus, Peter, and Paul, who, by the way, never talked about this stuff. So we really need to grasp what it means to be citizens of God's kingdom. Did you know that the bloodiest wars in history are all religious wars? often between Protestants and Catholics. And many of these Christian wars are rooted in colonialism and the sanctioning of slavery and various forms of white supremacy. I took a class this summer on Christianity and race in America, and I can tell you that our country, which has a rich history of generosity and courage and optimism and creativity, we are, we're a great country. We also have a terrible history and we have to learn to sit with both of those things and not say that because we have one, we're amazing, let's ignore the other. Neither should we say because we have this dark side, we should ignore the good side. Listen, we're a nation with hope and optimism and generosity and flaws, but the nation is not the kingdom of God. And it's important that we embrace that and see that as our reality. The Bible says that 
we don't embrace a party or a politic or a nation or a race because the Bible says this, God loves who? America? No, God loves the whole world. And so we understand that God is creating a kingdom in which there's no longer slave or free, Jew nor Gentile, um, rich nor poor, man nor woman. And Isaiah 2 envisions this day in the kingdom of God when every nation is joining hands and we've all dropped our weapons because our loyalty now is not primarily to our nation. We live in a nation. We vote in a nation. We pay taxes in a nation. We serve a nation. We work for the well-being of a nation. But our foundational, ultimate citizenship is the kingdom of God. And if we can live there, we can live as people of hope no matter who's in office, no matter what happens on November 3rd or more ominously, November 4th or 5th or 6th. We need to be these people of hope at this moment. So that's the mystery. We're citizens of a kingdom that is, quote unquote, not of this world. And certainly if it's not of this world, it's not of your party, (laughs) no matter what your party is. Second, uh, we have a mandate. We're told this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here, therefore, Turn toward it. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. That's the words of John the Baptist in that case. And then in Matthew 4, Jesus says the same thing. Here's what we've already seen. The values and priorities of this king and kingdom are contrary to every kingdom of this world. And by that we mean every ism, every system, communism, socialism, capitalism, totalitarianism, liberalism, conservatism, What all these systems have in common is a lust to power so that their vision of the world can prevail. And of course, this is every party. Every party wants power so that it can impose its vision on everyone. And the kingdom of God, I'm just going to tell you, is a total contrast to this. Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 27 is where we read this. A dispute arose among them as to which one would be considered the greatest. And here's what Jesus said. He says, in this world... With the kings and kingdoms of this world, the kings lorded over them and exercise authority over others and call themselves as kings, uh, those graciously bestowing gifts on those that are really under, under the thumb of their authoritarian leadership. He says, that's the world we live in. That's the politics of America and every other nation. He says, but it is not so among you. The one who is greatest is the one who is a servant. The one who is greatest is like the youngest. The one who rules is the one who serves. The one who rules is the one who serves. This and Matthew 5, what is called in the Bible the Beatitudes, uh, form for us kind of the basis of God's kingdom ethics and values. Ethics and values which are utterly other than all forms of prevailing wisdom. It's not the rich and powerful that inherit the earth. It's the meek and humble. It's not the violent overthrow of regimes or the violent vandalism of a rock tossed at a Starbucks or the use of military weapons on those who don't have any that will usher in God's reign. It's a laying down of our weapons. It's a working toward truth and love and justice through peaceful means that makes God's kingdom visible. And it's not people in power imposing their will on the masses through force that makes God's reign visible. It's 
those willing to serve all people, regardless of race or class or gender identity or sexual preference, to serve and bless all people in Jesus' name, that's how God's reign is made visible. Not the people who view trees and coal and diamonds and the people whose land these resources are on are just as theirs for the taking, as has been the history of colonialism. Instead, in God's kingdom, we're told that the lion lies down with the lamb, Isaiah 11, which is kind of this symbolic representation of the end of the predatory prey relationships that define our world. And instead, uh, seeing the world as a temple, a place of worship where rest is sustained, where hospitality is practiced, and listen, where there's enough for everyone. Can you imagine? That's the, that's the kind of world everybody hungers for. The way we make the kingdom of God visible is by displaying nothing less than the reign of God in our lives and in our life together. And this has to do with the fruit of the Spirit. I spoke about it last week, but let me be clear. You have a decent shot at believing that someone is in the stream of God's activity when they are displaying humility, curiosity, honesty, joy, truth-telling, hospitality, servanthood, contentment, simplicity, all the things that Jesus talked about. When you see that, that's evidence that the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, uh, these kingdom people are found everywhere. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 12, we read a story, and Jesus is with his disciples, and the disciples are, are uh, you know, Jewish, and they all have in their mind kind of this paradigm that, uh, you know, we're the people of God, we're the insiders, and the Roman occupiers are the worst of the worst of the worst. Not only are they outsiders related to the kingdom of God, but they're enemies of the kingdom of God, right? So that's their paradigm, and Jesus is, is he's with his disciples. And then, boom, this centurion rushes up to Jesus. He's a soldier. And he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he says, Jesus says to him, well, I'll come and heal him. The centurion says, oh, Lord, I'm not even worthy to have you under my roof. But if you say the word, I know my servant will be healed. I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I know that when I say to one of them, go, he goes. If I say to another, come, he comes. I say to another, do this, and he does it. So if I know, because you're king of the universe, if you say be healed, he'll be healed. So Jesus turns to the Jews, his disciples, and this is what he says. Nowhere in Israel... Have I seen th this much faith? And then he says this, many will come, listen, from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, who's in the kingdom of heaven? Many from the east and the west. Let me change that. Many from the left and the right. Many communists and capitalists. Many, many socialists and those who are under the thumb of a totalitarian regime. Many will come from every kingdom, every worldview, every philosophy, and be in the kingdom of God because what defines the kingdom of God is not your vote, not your politics, not your economic philosophy. What defines the kingdom of God is the reign of God in your life. <laughs> and you can have that and believe in universal health care. And you can have that and be 
ardently pro-life. Are you hearing me? <laughs> the kingdom of God blows up parties. And he said to the centurion, go, let it be done as you believed. And his servant was healed at that moment. A, a soldier, a Roman soldier, least likely, according to conventional wisdom, candidate for entrance into God's kingdom. And Jesus says, he has more faith than all the religious people I've met in all of Israel. That's remarkable to me. Because these religious people, hear me, they know the right words, they practice the right rituals, they have the right doctrines, but in spite of all that, their pride, arrogance, and certitude has placed them outside the reign of God. So let me just ask a question today as we're you know, listening to this in a very heated period politically in our nation. Who's your Roman soldier? Do you know what I mean by that? Like who's the one that you consider the outsider, the unworthy one? He or she may be on the left or the right, may be gay or straight, may be rich or homeless, uh, may be a black life or a blue life, but here's the point of the story don't label people based on these things, ever. Because people are not their affiliation. The Roman soldier has blind spots and faith. <laughs> Might you have blind spots? Might I? Absolutely. The question is, do I have blind spots and arrogance and certitude or blind spots and humility to be open to ongoing repentance and transformation. So when the day is done, we have to ask ourselves this question, where's our hope fundamentally, foundationally? And if I'm losing sleep over the election and I'm losing sleep over a debate and I'm losing sleep over articles that I'm reading and I'm losing sleep over my social media, I could fast from all those things. That's one approach, maybe it's legitimate, but the most important thing is this, it's, it's vital, whether I fast or not, that I say this, that my hope is not in who wins. My hope is not in how quickly the election is settled. My hope is not in the market's reaction to how quickly the election is settled. My hope is not whether President Trump is healed or not, though I pray he is. My hope is in a king, not of this world, who has already said to all of us, I will reign eternally. We sing it, we say it, do we believe it? And I'm here to say if we do, we will be people of hope right in the midst of everything that we're facing right now. I have good news, hope has a home. We were studying this on Monday and uh, my Friend Raul Perez is preaching this same sermon up at Bethany North, and that was the title of his sermon, Hope Has a Home. And I thought, wow, that's a good word. Hope has, I'm not a refugee. I have a home. And my hope that is my home is my identity as a citizen of God's good reign, a reign that will never end and only get better as days go on. Here's finally the challenge. We've seen the mystery of this kingdom that's not of the world. We've seen the mandate to repent and step into the kingdom. Here's the challenge. This kingdom is swept away really, really easily. Like we can sit here and hear this now, 
and be like this. Yes, I'm all in, man. I'm a citizen of the kingdom. And then, you know, the band will get up here and sing afterwards. And, you know, we'll be inspired and we'll say, I'm a, I'm a kingdom citizen and we're going to go out and we're going to watch the Seahawk game if you're watching here early in the morning on, on Sunday or you're going to do whatever you do or you're going to watch a vice presidential debate on Wednesday night or you're going to go to your social media or you're going to go to the New York Times or the Seattle Times or Fox News or CNN or wherever you go, you're going to go there and you're going to get mad and you're going to get afraid and you're going to get and you're going to get frustrated again. You're going to get anxious. Why? Because Matthew 13, 4 says this. The kingdom of God is like a seed, and it's tossed into your life. And if the seed falls not on the road, but right by the road, right by the road, and it doesn't have a chance to fall into the soil, if it doesn't fall into the soil, this is what it says, the birds will come and eat the seed, and it's gone. So I'm a citizen of the kingdom, and then I forget immediately. Why? The birds ate the seed. And here's what Jesus said. Hebrews uh, chapter two. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention. Lest we, and then I love this phrase, lest we drift away. I usually... uh, give you mountain climbing illustrations here at Bethany. But I'd never forget one time being out uh, fishing in the Gulf Islands uh, of British Columbia between Vancouver and Vancouver Island with a friend of mine. We go out in a little skiff and we're salmon fishing. And uh, I don't do this much, but my buddy, you know, he cuts the engine and we're kind of drifting with our stuff with our gear, trying to catch salmon. And I'm paying attention. I'm watching my line and I'm looking around and the engine's off. And, you know, when we cut the engine, we're about 150 feet off of a little tiny island. Cut the engine. I'm looking at my line. 10 minutes go by. I look up. That island is over a mile away. What happened? drift. And and it reminded me then of this story that Annie Dillard tells in in one of her books where she lived on Lopez Island and she uh, said she went went down uh, to get some driftwood off the beach one morning and she she saw her neighbor there who was this woman in her 60s, you know, and uh, she said, what are you doing? She says, I'm waiting for my husband to drift in. And it's like, what happened? Well, you know, he was out in his boat last night and uh, he lost power in his engine, ran out of gas, whatever. And, and so the tide was heading out and it took him out. So he went out last night, uh, but I know he'll be back this morning because the tide's coming back in. I, literally, this is what she says, I'm waiting for him to drift in, right? What you see in both those stories is this. There's kind of this passivity and we're not even paying attention and suddenly, we're far from our desired destination. Does that make sense? Like, if you don't pay attention, you will drift from your desired destination. And what is your desired destination? I'm here to tell you that your desired des- destination is that you function every day in, in October 2020 and November and December, every day that you function as a person whose countenance, whose habits, whose language, whose eye contact, 
whose charitability, whose hospitality says this, my kingdom is not of this world. So nations will rise and fall. Elections will come and go. Elections will be uh, perceived as fair or unfair. I don't have control over much of that other than my vote. I can control this. I can function as a citizen embodying hope, charity, generosity, nonviolence, peace, and justice today. I can do that. You can too. Why? Because you have living in you the king of the universe, man. Why would you settle for anything less? So Jesus says this, pay much closer attention to the kingdom of God lest you drift away. My theme I shared a couple of weeks, with, uh, a couple of weeks ago with you uh, is uh, for this season in my life, my theme comes from Ephesians 3, this phrase, rooted and grounded in love. I have this giant uh, fir tree in my backyard that's easily 200 years old. And I love to just go sit these days under that tree and say it over and over again. On the inhale, I'm rooted and grounded in love. On the exhale, thank you. Rooted and grounded in love, thank you. And I look at this tree that's been there through every administration. Before Washington was a state, through the settling, through the Indian battles, through the, through the, through the, through the colonialism, through the, through the injustice, through the justice, through the celebrations, through the fires, it's been there. Why? Rooted, man. If I could wish one thing for you and for Bethany, it's this, that we would be rooted people in these days so that a world desperate for hope and charity and meaning and generosity can see in this community that we are living under the reign of a different king, an eternal king whose, whose reign will never be shaken. And if we do that in these days, we will shine as light and change the world. Please pray with me. Father, uh, forgive us. The birds have stolen our hope. So easily we drift away. I want to pray right now, just kind of this prayer over Bethany Community Church and everybody watching right now. Jesus, would you root us and ground us in your love? Would we be so confident in your reign, so confident in in the trajectory of history that we're able to function as people of hope in this world. And we'll thank you for that as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.